American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. If you like American Catholic history, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about the conversion of Orestes Brownson, one of the most prolific writers and most important intellectuals of the 19th century. Now, it's important to emphasize what you just said there. Brownson wasn't just one of the most important Catholic intellectuals or most important American intellectuals, but he truly was one of the most important writers and thinkers of the 19th century. Right, and in his 41st year, he converted to Catholicism after decades of religious seeking. His conversion was seen by some as just the latest fad in his process of religious self-discovery, but as we'll see, Brownson saw something much more significant in becoming Catholic than in any of his previous religious movements. Yeah, and as you said before, he was a major writer and thinker of his time. He did nothing and said nothing by half measures. At each step along his path, he was all in on that thing and wrote extensively about his thinking. So when he became Catholic, he let people know why. And his writings led one associate to say of him, no one has ever equaled Mr. Brownson in the ability which he has over time to refute his own arguments. He has made the most elaborate and plausible plea for eclecticism and later the most elaborate and plausible plea against eclecticism. He has said the very best things about transcendentalism and the very best things against it. He has satisfactorily showed the truth of socialism and its necessity to bring about a golden age. And he has, by the most convincing arguments, demonstrated that the whole socialist system is from the pit and can lead to nothing but anarchy and ruin. Which should lead one to wonder if, since Brownson remained a staunch Orthodox Catholic for the latter 35 years of his life, why didn't people like that associate take note? Well, possibly because they lacked Bronson's determination to always go where the evidence logically led, no matter the personal cost. It's a common problem. People prefer comfort and stability to honesty and integrity. That was not Bronson's failing. He had others, but that was not one of them. But before we get into his story in earnest, we should note that Brownson presented a challenge to us in doing this episode. We thought about doing one episode on him and trying to do his conversion story as well as a rundown of his more interesting and important thoughts and writings in one episode. But after starting, we realized that there was no way to do it all justice in a, you know, 15 to 20 minute episode. So this is a rare two-parter for us. We'll just cover his religious path in this episode, and then we'll do another episode on his very interesting writings on some major issues. 
Yeah. So a preview of some of those issues. He was very, very opposed to slavery, but he was also opposed to abolitionism before the Civil War. And for another, he believed that the only way the American Republic could survive was if the majority of the people were Orthodox Catholics. Yeah, there was no way to do all that in 15 minutes. Uh, No, folks will just have to listen to next week's episode on Brownson's writings for more. Okay. all that said, let's get started. Orestes Bronson was born in 1803 in Stockbridge, Vermont, the youngest of five children. His parents were poor, and his father died when he was six. His mother, feeling unable to raise the children on her own, sent Orestes to live with an older couple on a farm in Royalton, Vermont. Of his time with this couple, Brownson later wrote that he really had no childhood. They were good people, but they were very plain and simple people who mostly kept to themselves. He was separated from other children, had no real opportunity to engage or play in sports or do other things children do. He worked and he read books. Lots of them. The books available to him were nearly all religious. The Bible, a short Protestant catechism, some books on the Psalms, plus a volume or two of Homer and Locke. The couple were nominally Congregationalist, but effectively they were sort of pan-Christians. They went to different Protestant churches, and Brownson would take in the various sermons and compare and critique them and their doctrines. This part of his religious upbringing comes back later in his story. After he becomes Catholic, he talks about how it's generally easy to go from one Protestant sect to another without any real loss of anything. But the step to becoming Catholic is another thing entirely. More later. But for the time being, this led to lots of questioning. He had a natural sense of right and wrong. But if one's relationship with God was supposed to be this way, then it should be that way and not some other way or any old similar way. So this church hopping was confusing to him. But there was an experience that he relates in his autobiography, which sort of focused his religious questioning. He was 12 years old and had befriended an older woman who lived alone and in great poverty near the farm. The woman was a staunch Congregationalist and was a bit of a social outcast. Orestes would talk of his religious confusion to her, and one day she said to him, My poor boy, God has been good to you and has no doubt gracious designs toward you. He means to use you for a purpose of his own, and you must be faithful to his inspirations. But go not with the Methodists or with any of the sects. They are new lights and not to be trusted. The Christian religion is not new, and Christians have existed from the time of Christ. These new lights are of yesterday. You yourself know the founder of the Christian sect, and I myself know personally both George Whitfield and John Wesley, the founders of Methodism. Neither can be right, For they come too late and have broken off, separated from the body of Christians which subsisted before them. When you join any body calling itself a Christian body, find out and join one that began with Christ and his apostles and has continued to subsist the same without change of doctrine or worship down to our own times. You will find the true religion with that body and nowhere else. Join it. Obey it and you will find rest and salvation. But beware of sects and new lights. They will make you fair promises, but in the end will deceive you to your own destruction. And of this experience, he said, the words made a deep impression on my mind. They struck me as reasonable and just, 
And I think they prevented me from ever being a genuine, hearty Protestant. When he was 14, he went back to live with his mother. He went to a school for one year, and that was the extent of his formal education. He then went to work at a print shop, and this greatly expanded the scope of books and other materials available to him, including Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas, Suarez, as well as Kant, Hegel, and other more modern writings. He also took in radical writings and other new philosophies he'd never known. He tried to engage with them all and took them all in. This, somewhat unsurprisingly, led to a crisis of faith and even more confusion. He had a strong sense that he needed religion. He also truly believed in the power of reason to deduce truth. And he held that beauty, goodness, truth, mercy, justice, and the like were essential elements of the life of the mind and of the heart. But his new group of friends and the broadened scope of what he was now reading shook his foundations. Atheism, socialism, and all other kinds of isms that seemed to make sense caused him to begin to doubt the power of reason, ironically, and the existence of God. He faced nihilism and it scared him. When he was 19, a chance encounter with a Presbyterian church became another major moment in his life. It was a Sunday, and the people were gathering for Sunday service. He felt drawn to join them. He listened to the sermon and met the good people there, and one thing led to another. He determined to join the Presbyterian church. He felt convicted that while reason is good and trustworthy, it cannot be left entirely on its own. Reason must have foundational truths that are not themselves subject to reason if it is to avoid descending into nihilism. For this, reason requires revelation, specifically the Christian revelation. The precise question of which version of Christianity was the only question remaining. He was baptized in that Presbyterian church, but in short order, he realized that Presbyterianism didn't work for him. The Calvinist doctrines of absolute depravity and predestination caused the congregates to eschew relations with any outsiders and to practically spy on one another to see who was actually a sinner. And he recoiled at the idea that a good God would foreordain that some men would sin just so that he might condemn them. So after two years in 1824, he left Presbyterianism and continued seeking. He signed on with the Universalists, becoming a Universalist preacher and editor of a Universalist journal. Universalism, in stark contrast to the doctrines which he had rejected with the Presbyterians, taught that all persons will eventually be saved. He remained a Universalist for a time, but then abandoned that when he found it also unsatisfactory. In fact, at this point, he rejected Protestant Christianity in total. He wrote of Protestantism that had become mischievous, more mischievous than was Catholicity when Luther rose up against it. It could not command the intellect of the age, could not meet the wants of the heart, could not aid or direct the progress of the race. It was dissolvent, but no harmonizer. It split by its everlasting protests, criticisms, and negations the race into divisions, but had no power to reunite them and make them of one mind and one heart. As a religious institution, it was a sham and no reality. So he was back in a mode of discontent and not knowing what to believe or whom to trust. The Catholics had a great notion of truth and authority, but they were obviously wrong to blindly trust the Pope. The Protestants had freedom of thought, but they were too splintered and had no way to unite. 
He still had some hope for Christianity, but had no particular adherence to it. He drifted for a few years at the end of the 1820s toward utopian socialist commune types. In 1831, he returned to religious fervor of a vaguely Christian bent, but not within the auspices of any particular Protestant communion. He went to Ithaca, New York, where he established an independent church. There, he hoped to establish the next great Christian thing, bringing together the freedom of Protestantism with the commitment to truth of Catholicism. In this way, he thought, he'd help usher in heaven on earth. A year later, he found intellectual and religious affinity with the Unitarians. They believed as little of Christianity as he did and had similar utopian notions. So he closed his independent church and moved to Walpole, New Hampshire. There he joined up with the Transcendentalists, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. He spent the 1830s as leading light among the Unitarian Transcendentalists, founding a church and writing his first book, New Views of Christianity, Society, and the Church. In this book, he laid out his vision for what the new Christian religion should look like and how it should organize society. He also became involved in Democrat politics, becoming friends with Martin Van Buren, who was elected the eighth president in 1836, and a number of other important figures in national and state politics. And during this time, he also founded the Boston Quarterly Review to be a vehicle for his own writings and those of his associates. His articles span topics from politics to religion to culture, there was hardly a topic of the day on which he did not have a strong opinion that he was not willing to share. He became known nationally and internationally. This is one thing about Brownson. There was never a time when you were left wondering what he was thinking or the reasoning behind it. I can kind of relate. Uh, he was practically a slave to logic and where it led, and he had a very strong sense that everyone else should wrestle with the same questions along with him. Yeah, it's a feature of his life that will present some irony later on. And how. Anyway, so the review lasted until 1842 when some of his articles caused a real controversy. An essay he wrote in 1840 took democratic principles to their logical conclusions, and the results weren't pretty. One thing led to another, and Martin Van Buren lost re-election that year, blaming his loss primarily on Brownson's article. So that was unpleasant for him. And we'll look more in-depth at some of this in our follow-on episode about his thinking. But like we said, when he wrote, he wrote what he had arrived at through logical inquiry, and he thought everyone else should inquire with him. But politics doesn't like logical conclusions. Logical conclusions lose elections. He wasn't a political animal. He was about truth and the good of humanity. True. And it was that simple and uncompromising pursuit of truth that would get him in trouble more than once. But it would also serve him very well, as was the case with other big things happening in his life at this point. Right. He was also on the cusp of his conversion to Catholicism. Yes, that. Here he was, a leading light of transcendentalism, a slave of logic, a seeker among seekers, and he was seriously considering the old Catholic faith. That meant accepting everything he'd rejected as remnants of the bygone era, the Pope and magisterium, the unmarried clergy, the nuns and the habits and cloisters, the strict hierarchy, the whole smells and bells mysteriousness of it. But by the time he did become Catholic, it was really all he could do. 
struggle had been about free inquiry and the pursuit of truth. He had rejected many religions because they either demanded too much control of his intellect or did not stand up to the reason he applied to their doctrines. His conversion really began when he was listening to a series of lectures by a brilliant young transcendentalist named Theodore Parker. Upon considering the implications of what Parker laid out, Brownson realized that the religious sense that is inborn in man necessarily meant the existence of a transcendent God who was the object and inspiration of the religious sense. As he put it, quote, To make religion solely dependent on a sentiment natural to man is to make it purely subjective, purely human, a development of human nature, and therefore to suppose a religion which presents no real object of worship, which implies no God, no obligation, or sense of duty. This would be absurd, for religion, if religion there be, necessarily implies belief in God and the recognition of our obligation to worship Him. In it is embraced, as essential to its very existence, the idea of intercommunion between God and man, of object and subject, and it is denied the moment that you reduce it to the subject alone or to the object alone. Yeah, so, in other words, religion requires an object of worship, God, and a subject of worship, man. Man worships God and religion. That requires God to be a separate thing that is not dependent on man. Otherwise, man is just worshiping himself. This combined with what he had taken in from a French philosopher, Pierre Leroux. Leroux developed the thought that man only makes sense when he is in communion with other persons, but by himself, man is an absurdity. There's a lot more to Leroux, but with that as a baseline, Leroux helped Brownson understand man's relationship with God, how Jesus Christ could be a mediator between God and man, and how the communion of saints works. This also played into his political philosophy and what we alluded to before about Catholicism being a necessary ingredient of a successful America. But again, more on that next time. Yeah. He finally overcame the last obstacle, the question of authority, and realized that within Catholicism, reason applied to facts was not an enemy of faith. Authority did not squelch inquiry and freedom, but rather provided a liberating guide when considering the ultimate questions. He said that the mind of the Catholic, quote, is no more restricted in its freedom by the authoritative definitions of an infallible church than the cautious mariner by the charts and beacons that guide his course, unquote. And so finally, on October 20th, 1844, he was received into the church by the coadjutor bishop of Boston, John Fitzpatrick. His conversion, as we said, was seen by people who knew him as just the latest outlandish movement of a restless mind that refused to settle. Many expected it wouldn't last. But Brownson knew this was different. Harkening back to church hopping with that elderly couple in Royalton, he said, quote, to pass from one Protestant sect to another is a small affair and is little more than going from one apartment to another in the same house. We remain still in the same world, in the same general order of thought, and in the midst of the same friends and associates. We do not go from the known to the unknown. We are still within soundings and may either return, if we choose, to the sect we have left or press on to another without serious loss of reputation or any gross disturbance of our domestic and social relations. But to pass from Protestantism to Catholicity is a very different thing. We break with the whole world in which we have hitherto lived. We enter into what is to us a new and untried region, and we fear the discoveries we may make there when it is too late to draw back. 
To the Protestant mind, this old Catholic church is veiled in mystery and leaves ample room to the imagination to people it with all manner of monsters. We enter it and leave no bridge over which we may return. It is a committal for life, for eternity. Following the guidance of the old woman he knew when he was 12, he found a church with authority and apostolic roots, and he joined it, never to leave. And his time as a Catholic was no less controversial than his time before. (laughs) Well, he had to keep giving his opinion. Oh, yeah. For one, he butted heads with the hierarchy quite a bit. Up to this point, the Catholic laity in the United States was almost entirely poorly educated, if educated at all. They were mostly poor immigrant laborers or farmers. And here was Brownson, a man more well-read than many of the bishops themselves, with an international reputation of his own. While he was always properly deferential to the bishops, he didn't back down when he thought they were wrong. He asserted the right and obligation of a laity to be educated, able, and willing to be active members of the intellectual life of the church, including holding clerics to account when necessary. Brownson argued strongly for a vibrant and vocal Catholicism. Surprise, surprise. This meant standing against governmental and cultural forces that sought to entice the Catholic Church to change, as well as arguing against those Catholics who thought it might be a good idea to downplay or adjust their Catholicism to please the crowds. To him, it was for the Church to change the culture, not the other way around, And everyone needed to understand that. In fact, he wrote a series of articles in 1853 in which he argued that the church is actually superior to the state. This got a lot of people's attention, angering many, including Catholic laity and prelates. In 1865, he wrote a book titled The American Republic, Its Constitution, Tendencies, and Destiny, a work which has been considered the best observation and critique of the American system since Alexis de Tocqueville's work. So great was his international reputation that the great John Henry Newman, who converted to Catholicism the year after Brownson, invited Brownson to become a professor at his new college in Dublin. After nearly 32 years as a Catholic, the end came for Orestes Brownson on April 17, 1876. He was eventually interred in the Basilica of the Sacred Heart at the University of Notre Dame. After his death, his son Henry wrote a three-volume biography of him and edited his collected complete works, which stretched to 20 volumes. Those writings present a long-neglected treasure trove of thought on Catholicism, tradition, the Catholic's place in the world, and in the United States. Though he died 145 years ago, much of his thought is as timeless as the Catholic faith and speaks very loudly to many challenges facing the Church and the American nation right now. We'll look at a few of those topics next time. You've been listening to American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help others find it by sharing this episode and giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Be sure to check out our sponsor, Beatrix Media, providing writing, digital marketing, website strategy and construction, and search engine optimization services. Visit BeatrixMedia.com. Experience your world communicated. Also, please support the many fine productions of SQPN at sqpn.com slash give. To learn more about Orestes Brownson, to find previous episodes, 
or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to important and unforgettable Catholic holy sites, please visit AmericanCatholicHistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, on Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow us on Twitter at ACH1513. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, sponsored by Beatrix Media and produced by StarQuest. <laughs>